Thank you for sharing, Grant. That was awesome. And I was thinking this week about, um, I, I, I notice I do this a lot, talk about my Bible college days, so you'll forgive me uh, <laughs> telling another Bible college story. But I was thinking about when I was in Bible college, I had this, uh, there's this thing that I used to call, in my experience of it, check-in-the-mail theology. And basically it was this idea that if you trusted God enough, you'd, you'd get this check in the mail from someone you knew or perhaps you didn't know at all to cover whatever financial predicament you were in at the time. And, you know, being that I was in a context which, I guess, I guess rightly so, valued uh, stories like Brianna just shared, They'd call them testimonies, though, if you ever heard that term. So they valued testimonies. I'd often hear these stories from classmates or in church about so-and-so would be in this financial bind, and all of a sudden they'd, they'd check their mailboxes, and lo and behold, they'd find this check for whatever the amount that they needed. I'm getting a head nod. Yeah, Brianna's heard this. And, you know, on the surface, we, would, we should and we, we would and we should celebrate this kind of generosity, right? Like, I mean... If anyone wants to send me a check, I will celebrate your generosity when I see it in the mailbox. Ethan's going to be the next one to send me a check here. But for me, what I found, I guess, troublesome is what often the underlying message behind these stories and these testimonies were, was that these people were receiving these checks because of their, their great faith. In other words... Have more faith, and a big check will come for you too. Now, having come from a family of kind of limited means, uh, paying for college was always a challenge. My parents were very supportive of my pursuit of higher education, but they just didn't really have the money to financially support my pursuit of higher education. But, you know, that was okay, I thought. I just, I just need to trust God. So I remember time and time again, praying about it, asking God to provide by way of a check in the mail. And, <laughs> and you know, I remember even that, that the last few weeks of my first year, as that bill was coming due, kind of hoping and praying something was going to show up, and nothing ever did. You know, rather than financial fortunes going my way, it seemed like the opposite was happening. And I think it was my second year, uh, yeah, it was my second year of college, my sophomore year, that I started working for this deli sandwich shop. Um, I don't remember what it was called. Um, but uh, they, they hired me kind of as a delivery slash sandwich maker person. So often, um, I would, someone would call in an order and I would go out and bring them their sandwich. And this was back in the, you know, the Stone Ages before there was a lot of like credit card payments. So I'd have this, this bank bag, if you will, and they'd give me you know, some cash and some change to be able to make change for people how, they, how they'd pay for their sandwich. And uh, you know, at the end of my shift, I'd bring back my bank bag and I'd count out what, you know, what the, the restaurant was due. And I'd keep all the, the coinage, because, like the things that had been given to me in tip. So rather than take, you know, dollars that had been tipped in, in, in paying it back to me, I'd just keep the coins because they'll, they'll help in two ways. Because one, you know, in college I had to do a bunch of laundry, plunking quarters, so it was nice to have those quarters. 
And then secondly, it was a way for me not to be tempted to spend that money, to save it. So what I'd do when, I, when I'd get home, I'd, I'd bring my quarters and dimes and nickels and what have you home, and I'd dump them into this shoebox. And over time, I got to be, uh, I acquired a pretty decent amount of change and even some few dollar bills in that shoebox, which was, which was good because, uh, funny enough, not only was I theoretically trying to save money, but I'd also committed to giving $20 a week to my church to support uh, missionary efforts. Now, thinking about it, it's kind of like, no wonder I didn't have any money, because I'd already, uh, you know, I was a good Bible college student, so I was already, like, committed to tithing 10% of my, my $5 an hour uh, to my church, but I also had committed on top of that to giving $20 a week to missions. I mean, I kind of wonder, like, of course not, I didn't have any money. Um, you know, it was all going to the church. Uh, not that that's a bad thing, obviously, uh, but looking back, it's kind of humorous. And the thing was that I had kind of made this, this deal with God, I guess. I said, God, uh, I'll give you 20, or I'll give $20 a week to missions if I get enough in tips each week. So, so that's kind of what I would do each week, is I, I would work four or five nights a week, and I'd usually get a pretty decent amount in tips, and then I'd take $20 from that, and I'd give that uh, to the church in support of this special, uh, special offering. So that was, that was really working well for, for some time until one week, for whatever reason, I just had not made like any money in tips. I'm not sure if I'd been stuck like just working behind the counter all week until it got like, to my last shift of the week, whether it was Friday night, Saturday, you know, something at the end of the week. And it's like, oh, well, boy, God, you know, I've, I've kind of made this commitment to give $20 this week, and I've, I've got nothing in tips this week. So, God, I need, to, I need to have a good night getting tips. And I kind of, kind of prayed that before my shift. And I, I, kind of, I came in, you know, it was like a regular storefront, came in the back door and clocked in and said, hey, what's, what's the plan for me tonight? And they said, you're on the counter. So I was like, well, guess I'm not making any tips this week. And I was sort of stumped, to be honest. Like I'd been taught that, you know, that if I just commit, if I'm faithful, God will honor my faithfulness and reward me. Except that wasn't happening in this situation. It wasn't seen to be happening in my college tuition bill either. In fact, it seemed like the opposite was happening. So after uh, sophomore year, of course, or I guess after fall break of sophomore year, I had acquired a nice little shoebox full of change from all my tips and what have you. And I decided... I guess it was, it was the end of fall break, and I decided, of course, you know, I'm going to go home for the winter break. And stupidly, I guess, looking back, I left that shoebox full of coins on my desk. And once you know it, when I get back, I locked my door, mind you. This was Bible college, mind you. But when I got back, gone. Do you remember this? Before you were there. 
So it was, you know, it was like, it was like a what the heck moment, God. I mean, to be real, I was like, forget giving to missions. I can't do my own laundry this week. Like, I had to go to the bank and get a roll of cores because all my cores were now gone. For me, who had been taught over and over again, if you act in faith, if you trust God, you're going to be rewarded financially. Things are going to work out. It was a blow to my faith. As in, if, if God loved me, I should see evidence of it. Financial evidence, material evidence, practical evidence. But rather, I mean, again, not, not that... It, not that I was supposed to be rich or anything, mind you, but rather that if I loved God and God loved me, then things were always supposed to work out. But for whatever reason, that wasn't happening. You know, throughout the years, whether intentional or not, in many ways, Christianity has taught us that our financial and material fortune is a sign of God's love and favor towards us. Again, not that, not that we're supposed to be wealthy, although I think we all have listened to those preachers and teachers who tell us that, you know, we're supposed to be rolling in the, in the dough, but rather that when we get into a bind, God's going to make sure we pull through. Except for many of us, there's times we aren't, we aren't pulling through. There's no giant check in the mail there's no mysterious donor. There's no financial windfall. The medical bills are still there. The financial burdens are still there. The debt is still there. And while all those financial burdens are there on one hand, in the other hand, we're holding on to this teaching we've been taught our entire life that if God loves us, if God is pleased with us enough, those financial burdens are going to go away. So we stand there trying to move forward, carrying this heavy burden in both of our hands, both the weight and stress of life and money, compounded by the, 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 compounded by the financial hardships, or the, the teaching that essentially our financial hardships are a result of God not loving us enough, God not being pleased enough with us. And that is a lot to carry. So what do we do then? What do we do when God doesn't show up in ways we've been taught to expect? What do we do? Well, as Paul mentioned today, today is Palm Sunday, celebrated by churches across the world. And Palm Sunday celebrates Jesus coming to Jerusalem before Easter and the final week before his crucifixion. Today we're also finishing up our series on doubt, looking at the question, what if, what if God doesn't love me? God can't love me. But before we get into things, let's, uh, let's read this, this passage. Uh, so Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 11, tells the tale of what happens in this event when Jesus goes into Jerusalem. So you can read in Mark uh, chapter 11, verse 1, or you can follow along here on the screen. And, uh, you know, I'll just read it here with you all. So starting in verse 1, says, When they were approaching Jerusalem at Bethpage and Bethany, near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village ahead of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt that has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it. 
If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Just say, the Lord needs it, and I will send it back here immediately. Then they went away and found a colt tied near the door outside in the street. As they were untying it, someone said to them, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? Untying the colt. They told them what Jesus had said, and these people allowed them to take it. Then they brought the colt to Jesus and, he th- and threw their cloaks on it, and Jesus sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut in the fields. Then those who went ahead and those who were falling, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our ancestor David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Then he entered Jerusalem and went to the temple. And when he looked around at everything, it was already late. And he went around. He went out to Bethany with the twelve. So there's a lot happening in this story. A lot we can look into. And again, uh, it's remembering the time Jesus goes into Jerusalem People herald his arrival by uh, throwing their cloaks and then throwing, you know, palms, perhaps something like this, into the road. And it, it may sound odd to us, but this was actually a fairly common practice uh, done by people to celebrate the coming of a royal dignitary or someone very important, uh, very important. But also, uh, this is something that the, these people, these Jewish people, had done years prior to celebrate the successful revolt against a former empire they had been oppressed by. So what was essentially happening is these people were celebrating Jesus as if he were a conquering king, the one who would overthrow all their enemies and free them from the tyranny of Rome. And on the surface, that seems to be what's happening, that Jesus is riding in on this you know, in this, in this parade on this horse, except Jesus is not on a horse. He's on a donkey or a colt. And to those paying attention, Jesus was doing something very differently because a king would have ridden in on a, on a big, powerful war horse, not a lowly donkey or colt. In fact, uh, some people think on that very same weekend that Jesus was coming in from one end of the city, it's very likely that Pontius Pilate, the, the one we know famously for, you know, washing his hands of the crucifixion of Jesus, who was in charge of the, the city, charge of the Romans, uh, it's very likely that Pontius Pilate would have come in, perhaps from the other side of Jerusalem, on a mighty war horse, with great fanfare as well, except he would be riding this big horse and carrying with him weapons of war. And this is the kind of person, these people, when Jesus came into the city, this is the kind of person they wanted him to be, that kind of Pontius Pilate who came in as a victor, as a conqueror, who would overthrow Rome. And not only was this what they expected of Jesus, this is what the people expected of God. For God to violently overthrow their oppressors and to bring them political freedom in the person of Jesus. But despite Jesus' repeated proclamations, despite his repeated assertions that he would eventually be crucified with Rome, crucified by the Romans, despite this obvious act to show that he was different, the people had been taught to expect to see God's love for them evidenced by the violent overthrowing of Rome. 
It's interesting because we see here that God's love and care doesn't show up for us in ways that we're taught to expect. God's love and care doesn't show up through violence and destruction. God's love isn't manifested in power and wealth. And God's love and care isn't reflected in our bank accounts or our financial well-being. Jesus was trying to show the people that he was a different kind of leader. He was trying to show them a different way, a better way. Jesus was revealing God's kindness and compassion, sacrifice. In kindness, compassion, and sacrifice, Jesus was trying to show the people that that is how God's love is made known. Not in power, not in wealth, not in violence. What we celebrate next Sunday, the resurrection of Jesus, is a testament that it's not power. It's not wealth. It's not violence that can overthrow, that can overcome, that can topple God's love. God's love made known in Jesus trumps all. So maybe you're here today and you're, you're carrying this, this burden like I talked about. You know, in the one hand, you've got these financial hardships and these debts. And on the other hand, you're trying to hold this burden of what you've been taught that, you know, if you trust God enough, if you're faithful enough, God's love should just be clear to you. And that's a heavy burden to carry. You know, yesterday, uh, after the Easter egg hunt, I went to the gym, and I, I, I ran, went outside running, ran three miles, and then I did some leg workouts, some leg day. It's, uh, my personal trainer is trying to get me on this, this new workout program. And let me tell you, like, after I work out, um, I was sore. <laughs> I, was, I was sore, and I... After I was sitting on the couch watching TV, and when I got up to go, go to bed, I was like, oh, pretty sore. Carrying these weights is hard. Carrying these burdens is hard. It weighs on us emotionally, physically, spiritually. So I want you to know this morning that your wealth or lack thereof is not is not, is not indicative of God's love for you. Your bank account is not indicative of God's love for you. Your business success, your social status, your material well-being is not indicative of God's love and well-favor towards you. In Jesus, God made it clear that God isn't about wealth or status or fame. God is about caring for the poor, feeding the hungry, being present with the suffering. All these external metrics of fame and fortune are not symbolic of God's favor upon you. I don't know if you remember one of the other things that Jesus did immediately after he entered Jerusalem. He went to the temple. Now, for the temple, in that time, it was the center of the whole social system, the banking system, the political system is all centered there. And Jesus went and he flipped over, if you remember, the money changers' tables. I've always thought that 
Perhaps a, a good thing to do during a holy week should be go to a big bank or something <laughs> and cause them havoc. You'd probably get arrested, but it's not too far off from what Jesus would have done. Jesus was calling out the, the oppressiveness. He was calling out the injustice. He was calling out these corrupt systems that had hurt people. He was saying these external metrics of fame and fortune aren't then, and they aren't now, aligned with God's favor. And uh, if I can be honest this morning, I think uh, we're, you know, we, I, see that same thing in church. I, I think there's this idea that um, the size of a church is in direct proportion to God's love and favor upon that church. Basically, the more people we have, the larger our buildings, the bigger our offerings, is a reflection of how, how blessed we are by God, how much God is behind what we're doing. And I know this is kind of biased coming from me and in our context, so take it for what it's worth. But I just don't see it. Now again, not that growth is important, not that we're not trying to share our message with more people, not that we don't want to, be, to grow and become more sustainable. It's just that in Jesus, I think God shows us in Jesus that God isn't into bigger and better. So we're never going to be a church that's about money and status. We're never going to be a church that's about giveaways and prizes. We're never going to be a church that's about power and influence. Because that's just not what we see in the message of Jesus. We are going to be a church that welcomes and cares for the marginalized and the outcast. We are going to be a church that welcomes and supports the doubters and the uncertain. We are going to be a church that affirms God's love for everyone all the time, always. Throughout his time on earth, from his birth to his Palm Sunday entrance in Jerusalem to his crucifixion and subsequent resurrection, Jesus was insistent on showing humanity that God's love and favor and provision isn't made known in the ways we'd commonly expect. The poor are blessed. The mourning are blessed. The peacemakers are blessed. In Jesus, we see God's love being made known in ways unexpected. So know today, know today, whoever you are, whatever your status, however much money or not money is in your bank account, God richly and deeply, positively loves you. And that is, I think, that is the message of Jesus. That is the message that the cross powerfully proclaims. And that's why the Apostle Paul said it's, it's foolishness to some. It doesn't make sense. God's love and God's power and God's support should be, should be behind the famous and the rich and the powerful and the wealthy. And that's why the cross seems foolishness to some. But I think the cross proclaims, I'll do anything for you, 
because I love you. That's the message of the cross. God's love made known in Jesus is unstoppable, unkillable, never-ending. That's what we'll celebrate next week.